there's no, we don't know what happened ourselves. Uh, the, the ship simply filled up with water and sank. On Sunday, January 5th, 1969, the 118-foot ship Sea Surveyor and its 12 crew and passengers set sail from electric boat in Groton. Its mission was to rendezvous with the submarine, the USS Greenling, send radio signals to an antenna on the submarine, and then return home. When the crew and passengers finally did return home, they had left their ship at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. The day's John Ruddy recently interviewed Walter Banziff, who at the time of the Sea Surveyor accident was a 22-year-old electrical engineer at the Navy Underwater Sound Laboratory. Banziff is now 76 and lives in Simsbury, Connecticut. I was aboard the research vessel Sea Surveyor, which had left Groton, Electric Boat Division, and we were heading out to about 270 miles south of Nantucket in the Atlantic in January in order to rendezvous with a nuclear submarine and do some tests. I was an electrical engineer and I was going to be running those tests. At the moment though, on that night just before the incident we're about to talk about, uh, I was violently seasick. I had not eaten all day and I was lying in my, um, in my bunk in my private stateroom aboard the sea surveyor and wishing that I was somewhere else. We were in a gale. The winds were getting stronger by the hour. The waves were getting bigger by the hour. And the sea surveyor, which could normally go along at about 10 knots of speed, uh, could not do anything like that. Um, I was asleep. I was wakened by a crash sound. Uh, to this day, I couldn't tell you whether it was metallic or what the nature of it was, but it was big. It shook the ship. And uh, I woke up, at which point I realized the ship was listing to port, maybe 30 degrees of list. It never went to level. It never went to the starboard side listing. It was just wallowing around that list to port side. Um, I got out of my bunk and I went into the laboratory space where we had the equipment we'd be using, uh, we're planning to use it the next day to send signals to the submarine. And I noticed there was water sloshing around on the floor of the equipment space. And we had a lot of manuals how to operate this uh, highly technical equipment. So I wanted to save those manuals from getting wet so I carried them back to my cabin and then I heard 12 bells. And 12 bells on a chart in my room indicated abandoned ship. I guess I was starting to put two and two together, the listing, the pounding that we're going through, uh, and then the horn did some, I think, six blasts of the horn, the air horn, fog horn on the ship, at which point I threw on my life jacket, I had on shoes, dungarees, a t-shirt, and a very thin ski jacket, and I headed to, towards the bow. People were saying, bring your life jacket, come forward, we're abandoning ship. Uh, I believe I was the 10th person to step into the life raft, which was tethered to the sea surveyor rail. Normally this rail would be about 20 feet above the sea, however the rail was about 4 feet above the sea because the, the sea surveyor had such a bad list. I jumped into the life raft and uh, 
things went downhill from there. The captain was the last one to go, Captain Adrian Kingsbury Lane. He was the last to jump into the ship, I'm sorry, from the ship into the a life raft. Unfortunately, at that moment, the wave moved a, uh, the life raft and Captain Lane wound up in the ocean. Uh, we pulled him in and he was th thoroughly soaked. However, uh, he was glad to be in the life raft. Very quickly, we then cut the painter, which is the uh, nylon line that connected the life raft to the sea surveyor rail. It's a good thing we did because very shortly thereafter, the sea surveyor continued to go down by the bow, getting deeper and deeper until it rolled over on its left side, the port side, and then sank beneath the waves. To say the mood in the life raft was somber, I would say would be a understatement. Uh, it was very quiet, people were not chatting, people were not moaning or sobbing or any such thing. It was just each person was sitting there kind of half believing, is this real? And entirely believing, yes it is, here we are. We're not gonna take the sea surveyor back to Groton, that's not gonna happen and uh, who knows what's gonna happen. So uh, it was cold, uh, nobody dressed properly, everyone just quickly threw on some clothing if they were in a t-shirt in a nice warm stateroom aboard the sea surveyor, they threw on something and hopped into the life raft with what they were wearing. Um, I would say I was pretty sure it was not gonna go well, but I didn't know how badly it would go. The, the first ship that went by us went by us about 20 feet away. We could see the rivets on the hull of the ship, but it didn't see us. It didn't see the light on our canopy. It didn't see our flashlight, and it almost cut the raft in half by going past us so fast. Uh, so that was uh, initially a high point and then a very low point. Uh, not, not much was seen the following 20 hours or so. We saw a light on the horizon, such as it was. Remember, we're in like 20, 25 foot seas at this point. So we were bouncing up and down. When we were at the top of a wave, the wind was blowing 50 miles an hour. Beaufort 9 conditions. It's a whole gale. At other times, we're at the trough at the bottom of two waves, and there was no wind. It was very strange, but we wanted to look out whenever we were at the top of the wave, and we saw a light way in the distance. I, I had no way of estimating except, I would say, miles away. It was a long distance away. Did the ship, because that's all it could be, did it see us? We didn't know. We had a light on top of the canopy of the life raft, it was illuminated, and one person had a flashlight inside the life raft. His name was Stanley Oledo. He took the flashlight and was told to wave it and just point it at the ship and wave it up and down and back and forth to try to catch the attention of the ship that is the only thing that might save us. Uh, I was sitting near all the emergency equipment, the survival equipment, and I knew there was a thing called a parachute flare which could identify us very clearly, very, very accurately to the ship and tell them that there's someone here who desperately needs help and where we were. I took the parachute flare out of the 
um, case, the waterproof packaging it was in. I leaned out through the flap at the end of the raft and was about to pull the trigger just as the raft hit the top of a wave and the wind capsized the raft. I and a bunch of other men were thrown out of the raft. I would say something like eight of us went into the Atlantic Ocean, four of them stayed into the, in the capsized raft, and we were able to right the raft by pulling on some ropes and flipping it back to its normal position and then climb in. Um, I climbed in with the now soaked in seawater flare gun, and when I pulled the trigger, we were met with a little fizzling sound and nothing happened. So Stanley was encouraged to even more vigorously wave the flashlight at the light on the horizon that seemed to be getting closer to us. So if that was not a ship that was gonna rescue us, uh, I was convinced we would all die of hypothermia. We were just gonna get capsized, knocked out of the raft, get wet. Every, every hour our core temperatures were dropping. So if that wasn't the rescue vessel, then it was kind of our last sea voyage ever. In fact, it was a very large seagoing vessel and it wound up rescuing us. About two hours later, two and a half hours later, I would say all 12 of us were safely aboard the freighter Essie Christine, bound from Virginia to Rotterdam carrying coal. And we were wet and we were cold and we were very happy to be aboard the freighter. Yeah, we, we thought we we're gonna die. I mean, quite frankly, after a full day of bouncing around on the ocean, we're sitting in the raft. The reason there was very little sea traffic or, or uh, ship traffic was the longshoreman strike on the East Coast, yep. which the captain did not tell us until we were in Amsterdam. And he had a few Heinekens, but he didn't want to depress us even more by saying, oh yeah, by the way, guys, the chances of us getting picked up are really very small. When news of the accident broke, the Groton-based radio station WSUB placed a long-distance call to reach first mate Richard Carlson in Rotterdam. The 12 men from the sunken electric boat research ship Sea Surveyor arrived in Rotterdam, Holland today, and WSUB News spoke with crew member Richard P. Carlson of Groton, the ship's first mate. In an exclusive interview, Carlson told us of the sinking of the sea surveyor and about the 12 men's grueling 26 hours adrift in a rubber life raft and their rescue by the Norwegian freighter S.E. Christine. Well, what was, can you give us an idea of what life was uh, like on the, uh, on the life raft itself? Oh, aboard the life raft, uh, uh, it was a inflatable life raft, rubber inflatable life raft, and all the men, uh, uh, it was a 15-man life raft, and there were 12 men aboard. It was quite crowded, and after a few hours, it became very wet. But unfortunately, we're in a, uh, we, we think it was in very warm water, and uh, it was uh, survivable. And other than uh, being a uh, lookout, we uh, had uh, a fairly good condition. Can you tell us something about the actual rescue or the sighting by the S.T. Christine? Oh, yes. Uh, this is a very, very important thing in our life, as you know. Uh, we saw a vessel going by, 
we flashed a flashlight, and unfortunately, the raft at that time, short, uh, within a few seconds, turned over. We did not know whether the life raft, or, or pardon me, whether the, the Missy had seen us. So therefore, we had to wait. And then the, there were six men outside and six men inside. And fortunately, the, the life raft, we, we turned it, rewrited it. We all got back aboard. It was flooded. Then we noticed that the Essie Christine had turned around. And the only thing we had left was one flashlight. And we flashed it. The Essie Christine first came up. And we were drifting away from them. And then the, the master of the SD Christine maneuvered his vessel in a marvelous, exquisite manner. And he then came down, we came down on his weather side. They threw lines to us. We went around his stern. And then the seamen aboard the SD put safety belts around us and hoisted us aboard. And the reception aboard was like they had done it every day of the week. They put, uh, they insisted that we take all our clothes off. They put big blankets and sheets around us, gave us warm milk, and set us down. And now uh, waiting a plane, I understand, or sometime tomorrow afternoon. We're uh, comfortably uh, housed in a lovely hotel here. And we expect to be in Groton tomorrow afternoon. Fine. Do you have uh, a final message for members of your families back here that we could uh, broadcast? What I have is that the watch officer, Mr. Nielsen, aboard the Essie Christina, and the master, uh, he was his name, first name was Harold uh, uh, Nielsen, and, and Captain Arneson were the most marvelous men in the world and they provided us with every uh, consideration professionally and with great seamanship. I, I, I can't uh, exaggerate how marvelous these men were. And now their vessel is being discharged and we said goodbye and it was very sad. Well, Mr. Carlson, thank you very much, and we uh, will be seeing you tomorrow afternoon when you arrive here in Groton. Three weeks after the sinking, all 12 survivors testified in a Coast Guard hearing. The captain of the sea surveyor, Adrian Lane, said the ship may have struck an underwater object, but he wasn't sure. Bands have said the crash that woke him physically shook the vessel, yet only one or two others heard it. On March 5, 1970, the day reported that the Coast Guard had released findings of fact that only hinted at the cause. The investigating officer's conclusions were withheld. No punitive action was taken against the crew. Banzev has been chasing those documents for months. He has sent many inquiries and the day has also searched, but nothing has turned up. You can read John Ruddy's story titled, What Happened to Sea Surveyor? at thedaycom